Well, I commend to you the gospel passage that I just read. It is another powerful example of the healing power of Jesus, Jesus' authority over all things in heaven and on earth. But today, I really feel led to call your attention to the book of James, to James chapter 2 that you heard so brilliantly read by our own Rick Geary a little while ago. I want to look with you at James chapter 2 and indirectly James chapter 1. I believe it has a word for us this morning. The week before we consecrate our wonderful new worship space. Aren't we glad to be here? Amen. Right? When I was first ordained, I went back to Jacksonville and worked as an associate at the parish that had sent me to seminary, All Souls uh, Episcopal Church. And it was in that church that um, I became not only the associate pastor and the youth pastor, but also became the pastor to the Sudanese congregation that developed at All Souls. One day I was at the church working as the, the curate of the parish and in walked a, a family. Um, I, I could tell, just got a sense that they were probably African and I was right, they were Sudanese, uh, husband and wife. They had not, they were, these were not the, the lost boys that you hear about sort of from Southern Sudan who had to escape during the war and fled into Ethiopia. These were actually um, families of, of Sudanese that had been trapped in the northern part of the country. As you know, the northern part of the country of Sudan uh, was predominantly Muslim and the southern part was predominantly Christian and subsequently there's been a, a, a war, many wars, and now there's actually two countries. But at the time, there was one country and these were families that were caught in Khartoum, the capital city of Sudan, and they couldn't escape back to the south and so had to stay there living in tent cities for years until they could find ways to get to Egypt and apply for political asylum in the United States. Um, what you find out quickly if you minister to African families is that if you do a good job with one family, you will soon have five families. And we did. We had five Af uh, African Sudanese families, and then we had 10, and so on and so on. And it grew and grew until uh, the time that I left, there was, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, 20, 25 families that were involved in All Souls Episcopal Church. Um, the Anglican Church in Sudan is called the Episcopal Church. So, of course, they came looking for the Episcopal Church, and we ministered to them as best we could. I learned so much about God's heart for uh, refugees, God's heart for the poor, God's heart for displaced and marginalized people, people who've been discriminated against. These were black-skinned people, these were Africans, these were poor, poor immigrants, and many of them spoke as their primary language, Arabic. To say the least, they were disadvantaged in Jacksonville, Florida, okay? They had things up against them in a lot of different ways, and they were taken advantage of at every turn. As a matter of fact, some of them would be sold cars at, at interest rates that were 25, 30%, taken, completely taken advantage of, and then, of course, sued when they couldn't make their payments. These were people who were working at Tyson Chicken Plant, de-feathering chickens for a living, not a, not a, not a, industry I intend to be a part of or to have to work in, I hope, but uh, this was the only jobs I could find. I learned so much about the Lord's heart for the poor and the marginalized, the disenfranchised. It, it changed me, it broke my heart. I, I'm happy to say that the, the Sunday that I was leaving, 
a Sudanese priest actually came from Sudan and, and his name was Simon and so I was able to responsibly, I hope, hand over the, the Sudanese congregations to, uh, to an Anglican priest from Sudan who was able to take over the work. But it, uh, it inevitably, it, it changed me, it changed my family, it changed Jody. Jody tells stories about and powerful encounters with some of the families and things that we did. It changed my children, the way they interacted with people, the way they began to look at, at, at poor and marginalized folks. Um, expanded our world, made us citizens of, of something much greater than just our own country. I commend that to you as an introduction uh, because I think it's important for you to know that, that, that the heart of God is for the poor. Uh, it's all over the pages of the Old Testament. And the book of James is filled with references that you almost have to be Jewish to fully appreciate because James is writing from a very Jewish context. One of the reasons why Martin Luther and some others for a while rejected James as being a part of the canon. They thought it was too Jewish to be Christian. But I contend with you that it is in fact extremely Christian and in very much in lines with the words of our Lord Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's very, very likely that the James of the book of James was the brother of Jesus, who was one of the early martyrs for the faith in Jerusalem. James is writing to a, a diaspora of Christian Jews who were living in Asia Minor, who've had to flee from Jerusalem because of persecution, because of famine, because of, of need. They are not unlike the Sudanese families that we were able to minister to in Jacksonville. James is writing to this diaspora of poor Jewish, predominantly Jewish people, predominantly poor people, and he is speaking to them about how they are to conduct themselves as followers of Jesus, as those who are under the royal law, as he calls it. King Jesus is our Lord, the royal law. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. James wants to expand upon what that means to, to truly understand and follow the royal law of King Jesus. Now it's interesting, there's a couple of things going on. One, um, one aspect of this passage is that, that James is aware that most of the people in the congregation are wealthy, or excuse me, poor. There are some wealthy, but that's probably not who he's focusing in on, on chapter two. Rather, on chapter two, he's focusing on those who are wealthy in the, in the area, in their, uh, their city or town or village, who they are giving preferential treatment. Now, if, if he was speaking to rich people in the congregation, likely he would have said a lot more to in the letter. The, the wealthy that are exploiting these, these poor Christians are probably not in the congregation. But James is writing about them and he is writing to them about partiality, discriminating between peoples. And in this particular case, discriminating between those who are well-off, who are wealthy, and those who are poor. Of course, this time, James was probably written in the year 45 AD, uh, there wasn't a middle class. The middle class had not risen up in all of its stratifications of wealth and the 1% and all the things that we as Americans, how we dissect wealth in our, in our country. Predominantly, predominantly it was the, you had the very wealthy and you had the very, the very poor, as are in many two-thirds countries today. But James is focusing in on partiality, on 
the call of the royal law, the royal law of King Jesus, that we would love our neighbors as ourselves indiscriminately. Look at James 2, if you will. Just grab, grab that black pew Bible in the front and turn over to James. And I, I tell you it's black because it's, the blue is the hymnal, and I don't want you to start looking for the book of James in the hymnal because you'll never find it. That's for Jody. She says, why do you always say it's a black pew Bible? Well, it is, but anyway. But, so blue is the hymnal, black one is the Bible. So turn over to the chapter two, if you would, and look at that first verse of chapter two. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And I think we would all say amen, right? May we be impartial as we hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, regardless of how wealthy a person is or how poor a person is, the color of their skin, their education level, their socioeconomic condition, the country of their origin, so any other factor that we would be impartial as we hold out the gospel. But the reality that James is speaking into, I think is a reality that we all have to be aware of and, and own and speak about at times like this in front of the congregation as a preacher, um, to remind us that our human tendency is always to be partial and is always to discriminate. That's the human condition. Human beings gather in tribes of like kind to protect themselves from exploitation from other tribes and groups and thus warfare in our world over and over and over again. But the law, the royal law of Christ calls us to be impartial, to be indiscriminate. So James speaks to a condition I think that we may need to be aware of ourselves, even if we aren't having a tendency to go out and favor the rich over the poor. Although let's be honest, we do that, right? We're impressed with wealth. We often cater to it. It's the tendency of every human being. And, and we have a tendency to, to, to move towards people that we feel more comfortable with and away from folks that we feel a distance culturally, racially, economically, socio, whatever, politically. Yet the royal law commands us to something higher, James says, and reminds us. Now, if James is writing to a predominantly poor Jewish congregation without a lot of these exploiting rich people. Why is it that he brings this forward? Well, I think that, that one of the reasons that James wants to be mindful of this and this congregation, those he's writing to, is because he is fearful that they will become, they will aspire at least to become like those they favor. That they will find their security in the wealth. You see, the reason why we love rich people is because we hope to one day be rich like them. Because that brings us to a place of favor and prosperity and comfort and security. And yet, what is it that we're to be putting our security in? Well, it's, it's the Lord. It's not how much is in our bank account, what our 401k says, what our stock options are, how big our family trust is. 
Now, I want to be clear that the scriptures are, are very clear from Old to New Testament that, that it is not a bad thing to have wealth. Wealth in itself is not evil or sinful in any shape or way. But there is a predisposition, scripture says, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Predisposition that if, if we have good amount of wealth, to place our security in that. And thus leading to sin. And there's a predisposition to be, if you're poor, or you have very little financially, materially, to be predispositioned to reach for God out of your desperate need. If you don't have anything else, you cling to God, right? Isn't that often the times the way it is in all of our lives? You know, when things go really, really bad is when we pray. Churches filled up after 9-11 because if terrorists can fly planes into the World Trade Center, well, who's safe? We cry out to God. So there's a predisposition. Now we know plenty of poor people that, that aren't devout in their following of Christ and we know probably, I know, many wealthy people who who are greatly devoted to Christ in their wealth and in their lives and, and give generously and, and live faith-filled lives. But what, what the scripture is pointing to is the tendency for us to place our faith in those things materially, in wealth, in those who are wealthy and being associated with them. James is fearful that his congregation that he's writing to will aspire to be like those wealthy people that they're catering to. Even though they are the very ones that drag them into court and extort things from them and take advantage of them. Isn't that odd? We, we, we want, it, it reveals a lot about our hearts. That partiality, that, that tendency to, to, to run after those things. And James wants to be careful with this congregation to point it out. He calls them to remember that God is impartial in his love, that he has, he has lavished his grace upon the poor to demonstrate that it is not about who you are or what you have, but it's your willingness to receive the gift of God in Jesus Christ. That in Christ, these who have nothing materially have been made rich because they've received it. And that the very nature of God is to be impartial that God loves the marginalized. He loves every tongue, tribe, and nation. He, he loves the rich, he loves the poor. God is impartial, and so we too are to be like him in that process. Well, how do we, how do we begin to, to, to appropriate this kind of a passage? Well, first of all, I think I, I, I wanna, be clear, you know, we're about to consecrate our building and, and God has brought us to this new phase and we want to expand and do more ministry and love and serve the Lord in this community. And I think you all are in agreement to that. But we need to be aware that if we're going to live out of vision, we want to be a redemptive place for people. We want to be a place where there's a redemptive experience of the church. If, if we're going to be, if we're going to take that seriously, then we have to take seriously the sin of the church oftentimes to be very partial and be very discriminant. 
I was uh, hanging out with uh, a guy that started coming to Servants, and he said, you know, I, I got to tell you, I was so impressed. I came to Servants for, for, for one service, and I got invited to go to lunch. And he said, I hate to tell you this, but I've been to other churches where you get to the service, and people just go, well, nice to meet you. And then they go about their life, and you go about yours, and there's no connection. He said, that, that so impressed me that you would care enough to invite me to come to lunch and to have fellowship with me. You see, there are times where we would say, we would all say amen to verse 1 of chapter 2, that yes, we want to be impartial as we hold out the gospel, but in the sense of living our lives and sharing of our lives and crossing the aisle or going to lunch with somebody, oftentimes we are extremely partial and we tend to move towards people that we're alike and shy away from those that we differ from. If we're going to be a redemptive experience in church, and I, I believe all my heart that God is calling us to be that, then we have to be intentional about seeking to be indiscriminate and to reach out past our comfort zone. Why? Because it is the royal law of Jesus Christ that we would love our neighbors as ourselves, that we would be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel, that we would take that seriously. Also, I, I, you heard Rick read Isaiah 50. I think, it's, I think it's amazing how weaved into our lessons this week is this reference to, to someone whose beard is being pulled out and being mistreated, which of course is, is a messianic. It's, it's referencing our Lord. Not only does God love the marginalized, not only is he impartial in his love, but Christ our Lord knows what it's like to be discriminated against, wrongfully abused and mistreated and cast out. Is there any wonder that the gospel is such good news to poor and oppressed peoples because our Lord Jesus became a servant, was scorned, mocked, ridiculed, and disgraced and rejected? And for so many, they can relate completely to it. Look, read Mary's Magnificat. Read the Virgin Mary's proclamation. It's all about God lifting up the poor, exalting the ones who've been marginalized and abused. If we're going to be a redemptive experience of church in Gainesville, Florida, we have to take seriously impartiality. We have to seek to be those who are indiscriminate in our holding out of the gospel. Well, how do we, how do we go about that? Well, to briefly, I mean, to say oh, we're going to have to live this out. We're going to have to learn to do this. First of all, know this. Know this beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that the Lord in his grace wants to teach us how to be indiscriminate, impartial in our love. This is something the Lord loves to honor and work out in his people. Uh, so I, I commend to you back to James 1. Can't go through the whole book because you guys probably wouldn't stay here all day if I preached all day. But, um, but just to remind you, count it all joy, brothers, when you, when you meet trials of very kind. Verse 2, if you begin to try to be indiscriminate in your love, to be a community that is purposely diverse 
in all ways, you're going to encounter some troubles. But James says, count it joy when you face those troubles. Because the Lord's grace will meet us in those things. When you don't know what to do, James goes on to say in verse 5 through 8, you should seek the Lord. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. He gives generously, without reproach. Let him ask with, with belief and not doubting. The Lord wants to teach us how to do these things. He wants to give us... One of the early things we have to do if we're going to move forward, being this redemptive experience of church, learning to be impartial is to be willing to look in the mirror. Look down at verse 25, if you've got it open, and 26 of chapter 1. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. His religion is worthless. True, true religion is pure, that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is not saying that means you stay out of the world. That means you don't accept the system of this world, which is designed to advantage certain peoples and to disadvantage certain peoples. James says, be unstained from that. We must be intentional about seeking to live above that partiality and discrimination if we're going to be a redemptive experience of church and our community. Verse 19 of chapter 1, James says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It will take action. It will take listening to the experience of people who are unlike us to understand and learn how to be impartial, how to reach out to people. It will require lunches like I was describing with that young man earlier. It will require listening. I, I love what Isaiah 40 uh, 54 that Rick read the first verse it, sa it says Lord I, I pray that you would give me the, the, the mind of a teacher that I might know the words to say to one who is in need of mercy that's sort of the Alex paraphrase but I love that I, I've never seen that verse before that has to be our cry church to the Lord Lord Give us something to say to the one who is in need of mercy. Make us quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. To listen and hear. Yes, this is, this is what the Lord wants to do in us. He wants to give us a grace to learn to live without, love without impartiality, to reach out to those who are in need, to, to be made like Him. The law of liberty, James talks about. The law, we know what the law is. What's the law of liberty? Well, for those who are in Christ, Christ loved us and gave himself for us when we were in sin, when we were incapable of, of loving him and serving him, trapped in our transgression. But by his cross and his resurrection, Christ has set us free from the penalty of our inability to keep the law. And so because of that, there's a liberty we have. 
in Christ. We've been freed from the, from the, the, the termination of the law and our, you know, our condemnation, and we've been set free instead to pursue the law of Christ in liberty. I love the other theme of these scriptures that roll around, particularly in the psalm that David led us in. It's a theme of mercy. Mercy overcoming justice. We want mercy to overcome justice, right? Amen? That's the gospel. That the love of Christ, Christ died for us and has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. So that although we sit under God's judgment as sinful people, in the mercy of God, he sent Jesus. But James says, the evidence of that mercy in our lives will be how we are merciful towards others. Not only those who look, come from similar backgrounds, similar education, but as we reach out in mercy to those who are strangers, those who are different, to those whom God has brought forth in us to bring about in us his grace and his mercy to an even greater degree. It's clear for me, I don't think James by accident brings up strangers and meeting houses and where you sit and how you treat people differently. Um, I think that how we treat strangers and visitors is incredibly important to God. It is so easy for a church community to get into a great place of loving on each other and ministering to one, one another and say, you know what, we're all full up here. Try the next church. But as those who serve King Jesus in his royal law, know his grace that is mighty to change our hearts because of the law of liberty, we say, yes, Lord, change us, stretch us, give us hearts to love those who are new, those who are different, those you choose to bring into our lives. And if we do that, we will truly be an impartial place. And we'll be a redemptive experience of church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, O oh, Father, make it so in our midst, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.